Today we are turning to the Gospel of John, and if you have your Bible with you this morning, can you turn to John chapter 1, as we are studying this morning, verses 35 to 42, and we are particularly looking at the disciple Andrew. You'll find it on page 1647 of the Church Bible, John chapter 1. We begin at verse 35 with these words. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. And he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. A couple of years ago, in fact, it was Easter Monday 2015, I received an email from a young parent in our congregation. And I think I shared it with you at the time, but I can't entirely remember. And this is what the email said. Oh, Marcia, you're going to have to help me here. I'm in a bit of a pickle. We've got, there we are. He wrote, Tonight, as I laid my son down for bed, he asked specifically if we could pray for the preacher. I asked, which preacher? To which he replied, the very old one from Switzerland who wears a skirt sometimes. I like his preaching, and I hope he doesn't die. After I composed myself, he led us in a very heartfelt plea for your physical and spiritual well-being. And I have to imagine that it warmed God's heart. It certainly warmed my heart the day I got the email. And, of course, it's an email I look back on with great affection and fondness. As here is this five-year-old knowing that his pastor doesn't, well, put it this way, he speaks real funny. And he knew the country I came from started with an S, and he couldn't quite get Scotland, so Switzerland was fine. And as you can see, I have my skip on today. As the 11 o'clock service, we will celebrate uh, our Scottish connections. Children rightly say the funniest things that amuse us as adults. About six weeks ago, as a church we celebrated our 170th birthday. Two of our original elders were from Scotland, and so we have that Scottish connection going. But my question this morning is this. When 170 years ago, those young families, mums, dads, five-year-olds, who were loved and cared for, 
who were taught to pray for one another and pray for brothers and sisters and moms and dads and, and pastors who wear skirts. What was going through their minds? What were they looking for? What were they seeking to establish when they got together and prayerfully said, we think it would be a good idea to have a church at the corner of Washington and Richardson here in Greenville. Some of them, as I have already said, came from Scotland. A number of us will have Scottish connections in our ancestry. Others, of course, will have German and Dutch and French and English and from all sorts of nations. And when your ancestors were thinking about moving to a new world, can you imagine the questions they had? Can you imagine the first question that ran through their minds? I imagine they heard of someone who had already gone to a new country. And in those initial moments, what was it that attracted them? What was it that was going through their mind when they said, I wonder if that is something I should do. And like most great and wonderful ideas, it starts with a thought and it germinates up there and we think about it for several days, if not weeks and months. And then you begin to get advice. Do you know anyone who's gone? Why would they go? What was their motivation? What was their desire? And like most generations, I suspect the desire was this. They were looking for opportunities to give to their children and grandchildren that they did not have. They were looking for a better life. This morning as we come to John's Gospel, I wonder what it was in Andrew that made him take John the Baptist seriously and to follow Christ. What was going through his mind in those early moments when that quick flash of a thought was there? Andrew, brother of Peter, as we know, was a fisherman. Grew up just outside of Capernaum. Moved in, as early adults into the town of Capernaum. Were good friends with James and John, another family of fishermen. And the earlier section of John's Gospel tells us this. That John, who wrote the Gospel, and Andrew, had gone to listen to John the Baptist. And you kind of get the sense that God was already working in their lives. He was already drawing them to himself. And they went to listen to John, and John spectacularly says that he is not the Messiah, and people were coming in huge numbers to hear him, assuming he was, and he said, no, I'm not the one. In fact, he said, I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals on his feet. And the passage immediately beforehand finishes with these words. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God referencing Jesus. Now we don't know a great deal about Andrew. We don't know what shaped and influenced his life, fashioned his character, 
On the surface, he seems to be a very ordinary, everyday individual. He's not mentioned in Scripture a great deal. In fact, he's only mentioned in the entirety of the New Testament nine times. Each time he's mentioned, he's described normally as the brother of Simon Peter. That's how he's known, the brother of Simon Peter. He doesn't do anything memorable, outstanding. And yet, he was quite simply extraordinary. He was the first of the disciples to be called Andrew, then John, then Simon Peter. He was, for all intents and purposes, always in the background. Seemingly insignificant. Not much to offer. Lived a mundane, ordinary, everyday kind of life. But what John also tells us is this. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 29. That's the section immediately before the passage we read. And verse 29 begins... The next day, and then verse 35, the next day, and then verse 43, the next day. And New Testament scholars tell us this, that there are so many details in there that only someone who was there writing their own diary would remember all these kind of details. And so we suspect John was the other disciple who was there. John, in fact, doesn't ever put the spotlight on himself when writing his gospel, except towards the end of his gospel. He finally, eventually reveals it was John. But the evidence is probably John, along with Andrew. Simon Peter, disciple, leader of the apostolic band, author of two New Testament epistles, a remarkable individual, always put Andrew in the shade. But notice what Andrew does when John says, this is the Son of God. We pick it up at verse 35. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And notice what Andrew does. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And come, he replied, and you will see. Can you imagine what it's like to spend the day with Jesus? Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be just incredible? I suspect from time to time, if you're anything like I am, I imagine myself in odd moments sitting down with a gold medal winner from the Olympics and just having a cup of coffee with them and saying, what is it that spurs you on? day by day? What is it that makes you get up at 4.30 and 5 o'clock to go to the gym? What is it that makes you persevere? What role did your parents have in forming and shaping your character? 
Or if not, a great sports personality, what about an author who's written a book that you just love and want to know about all the different characters and their family and the things that's not contained in the book? And the book is old and dog-eared and tattered. You've read it that often. Or a favorite movie, you get to sit down with the director or the screenwriter. Or perhaps a great musician or a singer or a national leader sitting down with George Washington, John Adams, having those conversations. But can you imagine spending the day with Christ, asking deep questions? Wouldn't you be so intimidated in those opening seconds Wouldn't you have the sense that he's looking into the very depths of your soul and you're kind of trying to cover up your heart and soul and you eventually relax and begin to ask those stuttering questions and you go a little deeper and a little deeper and what was it like at the feeding of the 5,000? Did they know what was coming? What was it like? Calming the storm in the Sea of Galilee. What was it like to stand before Pilate? What was Good Friday like? And then what about Easter Sunday? And what about Thomas when you showed him the holes and the wind? And So many questions. So many thoughts. And notice what Andrew says. When Jesus turns and says to him, What do you want? You see, Rabbi, where are you staying? Do you think you really were interested in his location? Do you think they would have been happy if he said, Bethsaida, it's about two miles away, and then walked on? No. They wanted to know who he was. And he doesn't come up and put his hand out and say, Hi, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't even say, Hi, can I help you? Doesn't say, Yes, I I saw you with John earlier. Who are you? He doesn't even say, Who are you looking for? Notice what he does say. What he says is, What do you want? Now, there's a question, isn't it? And let me suggest this. What if you arrived about 20 minutes before the service began this morning? Let's say 10 past 8. You were much earlier than usual. There were some folks mingling around, our ushers were organizing the bulletins, choir were coming and going, our musicians were checking things out, there were some sound checks from the back and the screens were running to make sure all was ready before the service began. And you're looking around trying to take it all in. And then you realize you have 20 minutes to kill. You think, well, I've kind of looked through the bulletin. There's not much here that I don't know. And you kind of move towards the end of your chair. 
And you find yourself bowing your head and closing your eyes. And you begin to pray. What would you be praying about? A particular challenge in your working environment? Something in your domestic home life? Thinking of moving a house and you need guidance for that? Praying for one of your children? Asking that the Lord would hold them close? That he would lead and guide and direct them? Maybe you're struggling with utility bills? Possibility of a job coming to an end? Praying for a grandchild who will graduate later this year? Praying for health issues? Someone in your family showing early signs of dementia? Waiting on doctor's results? Possibility of cancer? Is that what you would be praying you're maybe a little uncomfortable thinking I've got 20 minutes to pray I think I can kind of pray for 3 or 4 but 20 seems a long time but I'll try it anyway and then there's a settled hush and you're conscious that there's movement beside you and you stop praying and turn around and there is Jesus himself sitting beside you in the pew And he looks at you and he says, What do you want? Wow. How do you respond to that? It's quite simple, it's clear, it's brief, it's concise. What do you want? What would you say? How would you begin to respond? What a question! Your ancestors who left family, job, nation to cross into a new world looking for a better life. Looking for a life that they could build for generations yet unborn. Looking for moral and spiritual values looking to value hard work and education, the things that define them, the things that would go on to shape a nation, those were the things uppermost in their minds. And when they established a small church here in the corner of Washington and Richardson, they knew this, that in addition to all that they had experienced, they were seeking to follow and submit and surrender their lives to Christ day by day by day. They realize the importance and the significance of a relationship with Him. Not simply church attendance, good, helpful, as that is, but they wanted more. There was a settled dissatisfaction in their everyday lives, lives which for most of us today we would look back and think were inconsequential, mundane, ordinary, everyday. But when God was at work preparing them to move to a new country and to shape and fashion that country and to hold closely the moral and spiritual values that we find in this book 
he was saying to them this, there is no such thing as a mundane, ordinary, everyday kind of thing. In other words, he was saying to them, watch out for the seemingly insignificant, because it's those little things I will take, and I will mold and shape and make you the men and women I'm calling you to be. The first day, John and Andrew went to hear John the Baptist, never for a moment did they imagine they would become disciples of Christ. Never for a moment did they imagine they would become some of his closest friends, that they would become apostles. God was at work. So let me ask you, is there a settled, consistent, persistent dissatisfaction about your relationship with the Lord. Oh, you know him. You've known him for years. But there's that other area deep in the recesses of your soul where you know it could be so much more. That's what was going on with Andrew and John. As soon as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. Immediately they followed him. Immediately they followed him. Having spent the day with him, Andrew, like a typical younger brother, runs to his older brother, excited, thrilled, delighted of what's taken place. And notice what he says. He says, we have found the Messiah. He doesn't say, Peter, you will never guess who we met yesterday. You'll get, okay, guess. Try, try. I'll give you some clues. It's a carpenter, he's from Nazareth. Does that ring a bell? It had gone too far for that. It was beyond the casual it was way beyond the informal. We have found the Messiah. The Christ who has come into this world for the salvation of humanity. And notice how the passage ends. The focus shifts from Andrew to Peter. And notice what happens. We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. I think the vast majority of us have a special place in our hearts for Peter. I think we identify him because he goes through crises that we similarly go through. He grows in stages that we can understand. At times he's rash, impulsive. He speaks and then thinks. He puts his foot in his mouth so often. Most of us can say, yeah, I understand, Peter. Absolutely unpredictable, rash, impulsive. And yet, and yet, called by God. You are Simon, but you will be Peter. Have you ever 
in those quiet moments alone with the Lord, in the midst of prayer, felt and sensed his presence and heard him say to you in clear and distinct terms, you are, but by my grace you will be. That's the creative, empowering, transforming call of God. That's what's going on in this passage. You are, but you shall be. I wonder if 170 years ago, those who had the vision to put a church here had just a sense of that. And if you're here this morning saying, Richard, I'm following you, I understand. You asked earlier, what do I want? Well, allow me to suggest an answer for you. A holy, passionate, deep, abiding, abiding longing for a holy dissatisfaction and a desire to know him in that richer, fuller, deeper way. And it comes when we submit and surrender each and every decision of each and every day to him. And we hand over our lives and say, Father, I trust you with the future to come. And I trust you for the concern I have for family members with dementia and the possibility of cancer and the threat of job loss and for my children and my grandchildren. And we can trust him for it all. Why? Because not only do we know the words you are, but you shall be, we know the person who uttered them. And we can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of John's Gospel and this brief study this morning of Andrew and Peter. Enable us, please, in the week to come to take the seemingly insignificant, the everyday, the mundane, the ordinary, and to see and find you at the heart of them. Father, grant to each one of us that deep, passionate desire to be dissatisfied with what we do know and enable us to go to that place of deep contentment with you. Father, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.